Welcome to Insights and Indicators. I'm Jason Thomas, Carlisle's Head of Global Research and Investment Strategy. And in this podcast, I share our observations and opinions on the economic landscape, as well as insights from research being conducted by our team here at Carlisle. Today, we're discussing the evolving secondaries market, and I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Perriello, Carlisle's Global Head of Secondaries. This episode was recorded on June 7th, 2023, and the discussion reflects composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports that are accurate as of that date. So before we get to Chris, just some notes uh, on our monthly analysis of portfolio company data. First, of course, the discussion is about a recession in the United States. When is it coming? What data are you receiving that suggests the economy is deteriorating? Those sorts of things. Interestingly, May data from the portfolio actually suggest that the rate of growth in Q2, that is the, the composite of about 40 portfolio company key performance indicators that we analyzed, suggests the economy is actually growing at a somewhat faster rate in the second quarter than in the first quarter that preceded it. I'm not suggesting that the economy is gaining strength, but I think it's an important reminder that right now the economy is, is growing at a trend rate of about 1.5% with some volatility up and below that level. So each given month, of course, could look stronger, could look weaker, but not the sort of deterioration that many people forecasting recession had been anticipating. Second point, inflation is coming down. The Fed rate hikes, of course, the improvements in supply chains, distributed production networks, has certainly led to significant disinflation. As an example, our index of intermediate goods, these are things like components, parts, chemicals, other inputs, was up by about 65% over 2022, the price of those intermediate goods. Over the last 12 months, the price increase has been just 5%. I think even more interesting is that when you look at the dispersion in price increases across uh, these various categories, a year ago, it was virtually at 100% of the components, parts, other intermediate goods in the index saw price increases in excess of 5%. This year, over the last 12 months, I should say, about half of the index has either been zero or actually had to slightly give back on price. So today, it's really just very, very difficult to push through large sale price increases. The name of the game today is price discrimination. How do you set prices across products, across services, and more importantly, across consumers, your customers, in ways to ultimately maximize profits, maximize pricing, but it's much more difficult. And at the same time, of course, the trend rate of inflation remains too high. Uh, Inflation in our last 12 months was about 3.9%, so still well above central banks' 2% inflation targets. And and of course, this requires uh, tighter monetary policy for longer. The Fed next week is going to pause, but it's going to be a hawkish pause. They're going to leave rates where they are, overnight rates about 5.15%, but are going to make clear to market participants that the next move in rates is actually more likely to be up than it is down. And I think the key message here is is the Fed is not, it doesn't really want short-term rates to be any higher. I think it thinks 5.15% is appropriate. What they've tried to do is pull up forward interest rates. That is the expected path for the Fed funds rate over the next six to 12 months. For some time, market participants had been expecting the Fed to start cutting rates aggressively as early as July. 
And now, of course, the expectations of rate cuts are pushed out further into the future. By year end, now there's expectations for really only one rate cut. Uh, so, the, so the Fed, again, making it very clear, I think, that the next move in rates could be up. But, but more importantly, that rates are going to remain at this level through year end and, and perhaps through the first quarter, if not the first half of 2024. So that brings me to the third point, which is that I think in the private equity market, of course, exits have fallen precipitously. In many cases, it feels like sellers or would-be sellers that have mature assets ready to be liquidated to send capital uh, and gains back to their limited partners looked at deal finance markets in the first quarter, the second quarter, and decided they would be better off waiting for the Fed to start cutting rates for the broader financial conditions to ease. Now that there's expectations that the Fed is going to keep rates elevated for a longer period of time, I think this plan is, is now called into question. And I think going forward, we'll see are sellers willing to accept somewhat lower prices than they had hoped to receive previously to, again, to send that liquidity back to their investors? Or are they now just going to hold out to 2024 when those rate cuts are now expected to arrive? Very interesting. And I think uh, these decisions, uh, of course, will not be made in unison with a lot of different perspectives. And, and we'll see how this unfolds over the next few months. But investors that are worried about liquidity, that are not getting liquidity from exits from their GPs, of course, have other means of gaining access to liquidity. And, and I think the, the best, or at least most utilized, is through secondary sales. And, and that's why we're very happy to have Chris Periello here today, Carlisle's head of secondaries and, and probably the world's most foremost expert in this space. Um, so Chris, you know, when you're looking at secondaries market and activity, I'm wondering to what extent has this decline in exits the decline in liquidity uh, distributed to investors, what role has that played uh, in driving activity in the secondary market over the past few months? And, and what are your expectations over the next year or two? Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me and glad to be here. Um, it's a good question. And I think if you position it really two different ways in our industry, right? I mean, if you think about the secondary industry in general today, what you'll hear, you'll hear two different types of transactions. You'll hear LP-led deals and gp center deals both focused on really what you said is creating liquidity for your eventual deal partner, whether it be an institutional LP who is hoping to get distributions from their GP relationships or the GPs themselves trying to create liquidity within their fund. Um, so what we see today is actually, you know, the, the, the impact of the economic environment and rates like you talked about and the exit market environment in particular is driving volume in the secondary space from both of those constituents, right? You have the LP universe, who essentially is sitting on books and portfolios that they had modeled out some sort of distribution pattern over the next 12 to 36 months. And that is, you know, without a question, has slowed down a bit given the lack of exits in their underlying GP positions. So you have LPs now confronted with a situation where they're either over-allocated or coming up against allocation targets within their private equity portfolios. So they're going to use what they view to be a reasonable option, which is the secondary market. Now, that business has really been around for the past 20 or 30 years and has matured quite a bit. So I'd say that's probably, you know, that's about half of our business today as far as the secondary market overall. And it's a space where you're seeing this lack of liquidity really drive sellers into the market to seek out opportunities. It's a very volatile pricing market today, given what's happened, which we can talk about. But that's what's happened on the LP side. On the GP side, it's a little bit different. And actually, it's more interesting that we're even talking about this today. Because if you think back, really only a decade ago, this GP-centered market in the secondary space, it was less than 5% of volumes in the entire industry. 
and today it's close to 50% of volume. So what you really have seen over the past decade, unrelated to what's happening in today's economic environment, has been the GP community just adopting secondaries as a tool in their toolbox as one of many exit opportunities that provide options for their own fund management, creating DPI, whatever it may be in their fund structures. But what's happening today is as those GPs have now thought about the secondary market as a potential exit situation, they're in a situation today where the lack of other options is making the secondary opportunity look more attractive. And you mentioned rates, you, met, you mentioned access to capital. If you think about a secondary fund, we are an all equity buyer, right? So we're not really, we're not really subject to the idea of are there credit markets out there, which puts us in a fairly desirable position today as a provider of liquidity where liquidity comes at a big premium. So we're seeing increase in volume. We're seeing increase in interest from GPs, as is the tale of all stories here. It comes down to where can you find value? Can you agree on valuation and what makes sense in today's market? So in those GP-led secondaries, instead of selling a specific portfolio company asset to a strategic through an IPO, through a secondary portfolio company transaction, they're selling you a portion of their portfolio. Uh, it, how, how does that work? That's a good question. I think the terminology you hear in the market is a continuation fund strategy, right? So essentially what's happening there is a GP is making a decision on, as you point out, one, two, three, all the remaining assets. And some po- usually they're carving out a piece or a, a subset of assets out of a fund. It's evolved from multi-asset to single asset. And what we're doing with them is we're creating a partnership or we're creating a new vehicle, call it the continuation fund. We're capitalizing that vehicle with us and either co-investors or other investors that come into that vehicle. And then together with the GP, we're selecting assets out of the fund and moving them into this new continuation vehicle. So you're creating an exit for the, for the existing fund, creating a liquidity event for that fund, for those investors. And usually the, the thesis behind that is either that fund has reached its particular life or there's new capital requirements for that asset that that particular life fund of the fund does not match up with unfunded capital or some other reason as to why this makes sense. And to your point, instead of selling that asset to another GP, to a strategic through an IPO, there's some other reason, and there's a variety we can go through, that the logic of keeping that management team and that GP together for another turn and an opportunity for return is the best plan for that asset. So what you'll see is a new vehicle being created. Us, the secondary buyers, will be the, the lead in that transaction, setting the price, capitalizing the vehicle, and then we'll ask the GPs to partner. So that's why we call them GP-centered. We're partnering with the GP in that transaction to take those assets one or many assets together out of the existing fund into a new vehicle that sets up a new fund structure. We keep the GP in place. We're not taking direct ownership of the assets. We're taking a limited partner interest in the new continuation fund. And the GP continues to manage the assets from that point go forward, hoping to generate a return on this next set of capital we put forth against the assets. You talked about uh, distribution patterns, model distribution patterns, liquidity expectations, and how that is pushing some LPs to uh, secondary sales. I'm wondering, is this uh, something that they had intended for? Is, is secondaries a part of their plan that they're going to rely on secondaries for a portion of their liquidity needs? And just you know, more broadly, what role do secondaries play in portfolio finance and generating these kind of liquidities? Not, not, not when you're sort of forced to do it, but, but in a, a programmatic way, thinking about this as a, an avenue that you're going to avail yourself of when you need liquidity. It's one of the biggest differences in our space today versus 10, 20 years ago, where the LP community is very split on this in the sense of there are some programs that will run a more programmatic approach to you know, constantly keeping a certain percentage allocation in private equity and 
between the use of the secondary market and other aspects of the liquidity management tools, they will get to that point through active portfolio management. That idea of evolving from, to your point, an event-driven or distressed sale to we're going to actively manage our portfolio. If you go back in history from sort of 2000 to 2010, that's what drove the secondary market from being kind of a niche business to being an institutionalized asset class. We went from less than 5 billion in volume to say 25 billion in volume in the 2010-ish timeframe to today over 100 billion in volume. But that programmatic approach has been a big driver for that. So if you if you put that in, you know, churn terms, how you think about that, basically, you know, the market's gone from roughly 1% of the prior year's you know, fundraising churns in the market the next year to about two to three percent today. So there's been an increase in how much churns in the secondary market on a yearly basis. And that's driven by more LPs picking up the desire to just programmatically manage their portfolio. I would still say though, honestly, on a numbers basis, the vast majority of LPs think of secondaries when they need a liquidity management tool, but very few, and I think this is becoming more of a trend, but very few have really adopted a programmatic approach to we're going to do a, you know an active management system on a on a prorated basis kind of every year, uh, and I think that's starting some places where people are just starting to realize that there's a point in time that these things make sense. There's locking in returns. There's a lot of ways to think about it, but it still is driven by I would say active portfolio management. Maybe not so much programmatic, but very active in the sense of this is not a a negative consequence event anymore. It's just a way to manage your portfolio. Yeah. And secondary sales are actually growing to other asset classes as well, right? There's now credit secondaries. Are there other assets that you're looking at or that are now more common rather than just the private equity portfolios? Yeah, I think generally, if, I mean, separate from what we do, but from the market overall, I think if you look at the tangents that really have picked up, and it's really been over the years, there's a, a pretty robust real estate secondary market today. So real estate funds, there's a fairly robust infrastructure fund secondary market today. To your point, credit has come and gone. I mean, we did mezzanine credit deals way back whenever mezzanine funds were in vogue. So we've done credit secondaries historically. Those are essentially just buying an LP interest in a credit-based fund. Some of those sectors have really picked up speed over time, right? Infrastructure, real estate, credit. Credit today is actually the most interesting because it's evolved from just LP interest deals. So if you think back to buying an LP interest in a MES fund, which is just a straightforward secondary transaction on a different asset base, so today, two things have happened. One, the proliferation of the amount of type of credit funds that are out there, right? There are closed-end private credit funds. There's more that could trade. And two is the use that you mentioned the word portfolio finance, the use of strategic capital or having a credit type approach to either financing a GP or financing an LP and doing a refinance on a portfolio. So creating another option to a seller or to create a liquidity with someone that needs that and that has that need. There are more credit-like structures today in place, which allow either LPs to do a refinance on their portfolio instead of selling the whole portfolio. GPs, as opposed to maybe selling a minority stake, doing a portfolio finance deal at the management company level and using that capital for growth or whatever it may be. The evolution in the use of credit or the application of credit structures and strategies into the secondary market, I think has been one of the biggest changes over the past, say, three to five years in our space. So you've been at this a long time. Uh, you've talked, uh, you've compared and contrast current market conditions to conditions you've seen over the last 20 years. I was wondering if you could talk about opportunities over the next 12 months. Uh, we think back to the GFC, this, this, I guess, golden age of secondaries in some sense, really just because of fire sales. But there were fire sales everywhere. You know, the average bid price on leveraged loans at year end 2008, I remember, was 60 per 100 par. So that, that was not in any way specific to your market. 
but of course, we do have a dislocation today. It is this decline in exits. It is this massive interest rate shock that few could have foreseen coming at least the first quarter of 2022. So I'm wondering, you know, where do you see the opportunities today? What are you expecting over the next 12 months in your market? Good question. And we, we get asked that a lot, like compare and contrast this to the GFC and how it's different and how it's the same. You know, in some respects, it's very different. And I'll give you credit on this for helping inform all of us at the firm to understand how this is different, how it looks different, how we think about that. Specifically to the secondary market, you know, interestingly, everyone talked about 2009 as the best year in secondaries. Actually, it was a very slow year in volume, right? Because the disconnect was in the dislocation was so large, to your point, that the bid-ask spread on pricing there, you know, buyers had the same hesitations as sellers did, right? So actually putting a stake in the ground with conviction around a price point was a challenge. So if you look at this, if you look back over history, six, seven, eight were big years in volume, nine fell off a cliff as far as executable volume. But what you saw was a buildup of supply where then 2010 and 11 were actually pretty big years in the secondary market. Now, what's different today, even versus then, if you go back to that in 2010 and 11, it was still probably a 95 to 98% of the business was the LP interest market. Right. So you had the LPs really driving volume in that space. So from that perspective, although a different shock to the system, we see the same dynamic happening where there's a buildup of supply from LPs who are now trying to think through, I need to reallocate, I need to reposition my portfolio a bit. Maybe I need to create some liquidity even to even to continue to invest in private equity and to create some liquidity. So that buildup is happening. The same thing happened at the end of last year. We had a disconnect on the bid ask spread. So there was less volume that transacted but a big buildup in volume, which today is really starting to come through. And to your point, we can manage in a recessionary environment or in volatility. The big shocks of the system are tough because of the lag and valuations on the private equity side. So it takes time for things to run through for us to be comfortable. But in a volatile environment with some dislocation and say some recessionary pressures, we can deal with that as a buyer. We can understand how to underwrite that. You can get to a price point. So that I think will happen again. But what's different today is the GP business, again, as we mentioned, you know, today is a $60 billion business. That's that's half of the overall volume. That really was very nascent in 2010 and 11. It was there, but it was small. So today you have this added component of supply from the GP universe, who has also adopted secondaries as a liquidity management tool, really coming into the market and to your point, trying to create and trying to manage their funds proactively to create liquidity. So there's a different dynamic there. Now, that's a very price sensitive market because you have to transact the prices that make sense for your existing LPs and for the asset and for all the dynamics. But when you get to a point where you can find embedded value or you can find a good transaction that you have conviction around at the asset level, GPs are willing to engage with you now and discuss a secondary transaction on a continuation fund, which really wasn't the case in 10 and 11. So there's this added dimension, which gives us, I would say, a bigger pool efficient. At the end of the day, we have more opportunities for us as buyers. It also gives the LPs and the GPs more opportunities to think through how they want to manage their portfolio. So I think we're in a better place today, even though I think it is a good opportunity from the buyer's perspective. We're still undercapitalized as an industry. If you think about the, you know, the amount of capital in the hands of secondary buyers, it has not kept up. Capital formation has not kept up with the volumes that have increased in the secondary market. So there are opportunities as buyers. At the same time, you know, it's a price sensitive market in some respects. So sellers will make decisions based on what's available in the market. But I think we're pretty optimistic overall for the secondary market in general, really for the next one to three year run here as people manage through, to your point, what's happened at their own portfolio levels, creating exit opportunities that manage through volatility. Great. Well, Chris, that's all I had. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks everyone uh, for listening. This is Insights and Indicators, and we look forward to be back talking to you in early July. Thanks again.